I wanted to have a word. What about? About you and me? About marriage? I was thinking, you're a widow and my wife is dead. You're a good-looking woman. My sons need a mother. But I don't need your sons. You don't? No. Don't you need a husband? What for? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 97 this time around, and that is back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? I chose Antonia's Line from 1995, directed and written by Marlene Goris, with Willeke van Amaroy, Els Dottermans, Jan de Clare, Verle van Overloop, Esther Vriesendorp, Caroline Spoor, Tirza Ravenstein, and Miel Sagers. And I apologize for all of the names I'm sure I butchered. The film is about Antonia, a Dutch mother who establishes a close-knit, thriving matriarchal community. Now, we're recording this during Oscar season, just after the nominations were announced and during the run-up to the broadcast. I am not fond of the Oscars, as I think everyone probably knows by now. But I recognize the benefit that it can have. Boosting visibility leading to more work, reaching that audience that you might not have otherwise reached. And I think we should mention right up front, Marlene Goris was the first woman to win an Oscar for directing a full-length feature when this won for Best Foreign Film in 1995. That's 15 years prior to Catherine Bigelow winning Best Director in 2010. So it's definitely a milestone in that regard. I generally think of the Oscars as a big, fat whatever, but I also reserve the right to be indignant and this is one of the things I'm indignant about, just the time it took between those wins and how late they came. And I wanted to give just a tiny bit of background before we get started on the film itself. Now, it took Marlene Goris a number of years to get this film made after she had originally written it back in 1988. It was all about finding funding, there's a large cast involved, and she had to find the right village for this setting. It ended up being in Belgium, by the way. And she had envisioned the story being completely different from her previous works, like A Question of Silence from 1982, which I haven't seen yet. Have you? Unfortunately, no. I've only read about it. I'm not sure how widely available it is. I'll have to check. Now, she referred to that film as Indictments Against Society, but she thinks of Antonia as a celebration of life. It incorporates fairy tale elements and cruel details, which we will definitely get to. Well, the film is bookended by the last day of her life, and it's immediately clear that she is a willful person. And this story of her life begins and ends on her terms with this immense sprawling reverie in between. After having left 20 years prior, her daughter Daniela is with her, which I think was instrumental to the initial impressions I have. I feel like she is bringing a life well and fully lived back here with her. Those experiences that she had to leave the village to have, all of that is her armor and ammunition for the battles ahead. I want to reflect for a moment before we get into the beginning of the flashback. The setting we're immediately brought into with the birds singing and that reflective warmth from her spare but warmly painted room. I'm thinking about that camera gliding indoors, all through natural sunlight as we see the drawings that we come to know as Daniela's of various people lining the wall, and we watch her working in the yard, and then we join her there. Quick shout out to the cinematographer Willie Stassen, who is Belgian. Now we do get that time jump, which also makes me want to comment on Jan Sewell, who did the makeup effects which I think are some of the best I've ever seen here. We watch Antonia age over decades. She's also, Jan Sewell that is, done some of our other favorite work, like Absolutely Fabulous. You are absolutely right about the makeup. Not once did it take me out of things, which is often the way that I know, hmm, this is not working. 
It's completely believable at every stage. Is her return to the village here the part that actually portrays her age accurately? Her and Daniela, is that what you think? Is that the feeling you get? Yes, to take the actress at the time, yes, I think it's closest to her age. Daniela is playing a bit younger at the beginning, and then we see her grow into that 20-something woman that she was at about that time. Their arrival in the village feels epical. It feels monumental to me. I know that it's the beginning of the story, and we haven't quite gotten to know the scope of it, but... Something about it right away just makes me feel that. And I think a large part of that has to do with the condition of the village and the banner that is posted behind them. This is just post-World War II, literally just after. And this banner hanging behind them says, Welcome Liberators. And I love the double meaning of that banner. On the surface, obviously, it's welcoming the American soldiers that are coming to assist. But more specifically, it is addressing the arrival of these two women, you see that unfurled behind them, and there can be no doubt as to who the driving engine of this action will be. This post-war backdrop is interesting to me for another reason as well. It's never overtly stated, but we can infer a lot about the role of war in setting up this premise that there is now the opportunity, or even the necessity, maybe, to rebuild this world that happens to have fewer men in it, because that is literally the case due to combat casualties. Patriarchal institutions have destroyed themselves, and so matriarchal ones are arising in this vacuum out of necessity. I think it's fun as well how long that banner stays up. I think it's about as much time as it takes the village to sort of warm up to these outsiders. Because it's not just that Antonia has been away, but that she and Daniela reject the rhythm of the village. They make their own rhythm. Speaking of rhythm, this is not the score I expected. Does it work for you? It doesn't, and I hadn't thought about it because I'd only seen it once before, soon after it came out. It didn't really strike me at that time, but it definitely did in this viewing. In general, it just feels like too much, or not quite the right film. There are moments that I prefer, especially towards the end when Teresa is composing her own music. I like that element. I may be slightly more forgiving than you. I would say yes, but it's still a qualified yes. I was definitely, like you, thinking smaller. A quartet, maybe. It's a pastoral, so I expected a more intimate, modest feeling. The thing that leads me to be more forgiving, maybe, is that it's still appropriately unconventional in places. But I would have to go back and watch again and listen again to be completely convinced. It prompted enough of a reaction that I at least noted how off-guard it caught me. Same for me. Antonia and Daniela have come back just in time for the last moments of Antonia's mother. She is raving mad, cursing at the world, at her dead husband, at everything, cursing and denouncing Antonia with her last breath. And then she's kind enough to kick the bucket. Her mother's room is like a living mausoleum, almost. Is this an odd place to begin? Well, not odd, maybe, as much as just hitting the audience and Antonia with a challenge right away? I think it's interesting to start here because this is one of the very few examples of an extreme reaction of any kind from a woman in the film. I also think it's fascinating because then she just clears off. Her mother is cantankerous, that's for sure. She's stubborn. She's funny. She's definitely not going quietly into that good night. I feel a little bit like her mother is the blueprint for all of these women, actually. Although she is the extreme end of the spectrum, like you mentioned, Antonia's line obviously extends from Antonia in either direction. And it definitely feels more like a spectrum than it actually does just a line of lineage or just a chronological measure. But we'll get further into that as we meet more of these women. I should also mention that this joint is like the USA Network. Characters welcome. The village is full of them. You've got the shut-in philosopher Crooked Finger, Mad Madonna who bays at the moon, the Protestant who lives beneath her, frustratingly, inextricably tied to her in both life and death, Olga the Russian who owns the pub, Looney Lips, a simple-minded farm boy, less flamboyantly maybe there's also Farmer Boss who seems to be a kindred spirit and an outsider based on only having lived in the village for two decades. There are a number of these films centered on a collection of sympathetic oddballs. It's not an uncommon device. What do you think sets this film apart from the majority of those? 
I'm most interested in how Antonia and the women around her and her family interact with those villagers and how they don't interact with those villagers. Every person's life is not intertwined with everyone else's, so it feels a little less madcap that way, and it makes those deep relationships that they do have, especially with Crooked Finger as an example, all the more poignant. Antonia at the center, I think, is what makes the most significant difference for me. She's a character that's quite unlike most of those that collect other characters like this in their orbit. Usually those characters are much more traditionally nurturing or maternal, as we might think of it, softer, quote-unquote, for lack of a better term. She seems to operate more on the basis of reason and, matter-of-fact, pragmatism than sentiment or emotion. Not that she lacks those characteristics, they're just more evenly distributed than we typically see in most cinematic matriarchs. This is not going to be a sexy description, but if I had to come up with just one phrase or word to describe this, I would say even-keeled. Although it does have its flights of fancy, on the way to her mother's funeral, if we weren't already well aware of it, this falls in the realm of magical realism. As Daniela has visions during the funeral, the mother sitting up in her coffin singing My Blue Heaven, a statue of Christ moving in acknowledgement of all these circumstances... Later, there's another episode with a statue in a graveyard punishing the priest. So even keeled, definitely, but not necessarily lacking whimsy. And even with that, they still tie that to a pragmatic foundation that I relate to in a lot of ways, because this is one of the more significant ones, it seems like. They don't have much use for religion, especially of the hypocritical variety practiced by the majority of the village. Their rejection of this, or more, I guess, accurately operating on the outside of that, it's just the very first instance of many times that we'll see man-made systems trying and failing to explain and control nature. She has made quite the impact coming back. For a village this size, there's a remarkable variety of cruel idiots, outcasts, and self-imposed exiles. And Antonia manages to affect them all in one way or another, even though, as you point out, Otherwise, their lives are not intertwined in the way that we think of something like an Ealing comedy about a small village. Some she obviously has a deeper affinity for than others, Crooked Finger, for example. I think of him as their cohort. Not on their wavelength, exactly. In fact, he's quite the opposite in significant ways, but still a fellow traveler. I like how much of an impact he has on village life without ever even leaving his own home. He's like the anchor that keeps that magical realism grounded. He's the opposite end of the spectrum with the quote-unquote normal villagers residing in between somehow. Is it as powerful a film for you without him? What do you make of the difference in his reality versus the reality of everyone else? I'll definitely have more to say about this later, but he is one of my two favorite characters. He's the person I identify with the most, probably because of my very favorite element of having a deep well of sadness. If I were to move to a village, I would probably be the village shut-in. I'd still come visit you. Check out your library. Thanks, honey. He does a lot of important things for me, too. He's a repository of knowledge, so he functions as a barometer of sorts. We can gauge a villager's intellectual ability or curiosity based on their level of interaction with him. The most significant thing about him, though, being his role in Teresa's life. What do you imagine the connection between he and Antonia to be? Do you picture their origin story very specifically? She mentions that they were great school friends, which seems appropriate because you are closest to those who are closest to you in proximity. I think they realize something very important in each other, which is that they let each other be. They were probably about the only two people doing that at that time. And that's obviously extended into adulthood. Their relationship has obviously withstood the test of time, probably because they don't force it too much. And I think time is another interesting element in this film. The film is dominated by the passing of time, sometimes slowly, sometimes swiftly. It's reflected visually in the seasons, and that also marks the farmer's calendar, which seems incredibly appropriate here. Well, one particular farmer's calendar is much more of just reaping and sowing of the field variety. He feels his biological clock maybe a little bit. And that's Farmer Boss. And Antonia has no time to rekindle old, sometimes married flames or entertain new ones, it seems like. It's just not on our agenda. And he comes to propose, appropriately, she makes a counterproposal. 
they each just have nothing that the other needs immediately. And I really love this exchange. I'm glad you chose it for our opening scene. It may be my favorite scene in the film, and I think it runs counter to this narrative that you hear in criticism that all the men are neutered, dangerous, or imbeciles. It just does not feel that way to me. It feels to me like they're on equal footing here, that this is a negotiation between two people that are starting from just vastly different places. But we see them move closer and closer together over time. It's quite a long period of time, in fact, a lifetime, practically, so that their evolution together feels completely earned, it's never rushed, and it's always with a great deal of regard for one another. For me, it speaks volumes that she kept him in her life because she doesn't afford that to those that don't merit it, and also that he persisted in his attention and affection for her as he saw something in her that was worth entering into what was initially for him an unorthodox arrangement. But no one is hurt and no one is diminished. I love it too. It's completely unnecessary to have to enter into some sort of settlement, essentially. She's been basically building the family that she wants, sometimes not on purpose. As with someone like Looney Lips, who recognizes something in her that he wants to be a part of. So why take a husband when you could take a friend and eventually a lover on your own terms? After all, she does have work to do here. So you're saying, no time, make love. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Until there is time. And then make plenty of it. I enjoy that as well. The way that large chunks of time, the passage of those, that's obviously marked in two distinct ways. The first thing you already referred to, these harvest cycles, war is over, obviously, and in the wake of that destruction, the focus has now shifted to growth, rebirth, regeneration. We have the sowing of the land, the waxing and waning of the moon, clearly symbolic of fertility and the feminine. We hear about nature giving birth to nothing but itself, and that to me feels very satisfying as an idea in its lack of complication. These interludes, they work really well as metaphor, and they're beautifully photographed. Do they, though, occasionally gloss over too much? Is there too much reliance on voiceover basically saying, a lot of time passed, and here's the summary of some significant developments that happened off-screen? That device of sometimes not showing us things that have occurred, I actually like because it gives power to different actions. I also really like that it seems to reflect one of the negative aspects of village life, which is the silence of villagers, sometimes when they should not be, and then sometimes that life just continues to move on. The other way that I enjoy that they mark the passage of this time, as opposed to just the cycles of sowing and harvest, we also see it in the ebb and flow of the family dinner table. All of these people that gather around, this chosen family, it reminds me, strangely enough, of the conversation that we had about John Waters' female trouble. She makes room at her table for all these wildly disparate characters to be their best self, the way you mentioned she does with Crooked Finger. And that's everyone from innocent children to nihilistic philosophers. We should mention, though, that even though this aesthetic is a fairy tale and Antonia's whole thing is inclusivity and protection, very real-world brutality and violation occurs. Daniela, at one point, comes upon Didi, who is the only daughter in this group of idiot father-and-son farmers that live down the road. She is being raped by her brother, Pitta, which we can only assume is a tragically ongoing situation. And Daniela, quite appropriately, pitchforks him right through the hand, straight into his groin. Never having seen it before, I did put in my notes on this initial viewing that I get the feeling Pitta will be back and it will not be good. I think about something we talked about earlier of what sometimes they're not paying attention to because they don't feel that their lives are intertwined. Some of those things are happening outside of them and those chickens will come home to roost. That's also why I mentioned this silence of the village. I think you're totally right. This has been going on for some time. Surely, everyone knows this, and no one is saying anything. Like the complicity of the priest during the war with the Jewish family. Everyone knows and says nothing, and that can be good and bad. And this still is a fairy tale. There have to be things that we need to be rescued from. Daniela does that rescuing of Didi. Now she's in the family fold. And at this point, it's time for Daniela to start to make her own way as well. This is an art school. While she won't ultimately end up being my favorite character, though she's close, Daniela is definitely the most interesting character for me. 
Maybe I should reframe that a little. Maybe she is my favorite for how rich her contribution to the story is, and there's just another character that I relate to more closely. That's probably more accurate. I think Daniela is the most textured and complete manifestation of all these specific drives, impulses, and viewpoints that guide these women through their lives. She's driven to pursue her creative muse and goes to study art in the city. And we did come to learn, like you said, that those sketches of family and friends in Antonia's room were all done by her hand. From the very beginning, I really liked the way they are together as mother and daughter. I really admire this ability to let go and that a deep bond does not necessarily require close proximity. That may be the thing I relate to most in the whole film. If you've listened to our episode about No Country for Old Men way back in episode 8, I go into a lot of detail about how this is essentially my father and I. So I appreciate it when I see parents that encourage their children's boundless exploration. And then, when and if it's time to come home, they'll have a fire burning there waiting for you. None of the miles that might be in between at any given time mean that that bond is any weaker. I like, too, that this relationship is not reflected of a dependency on each other for either of them. And so it seems appropriate that Daniela decides, okay, I want to have a baby, for reasons completely of her own, not to fulfill some sort of deep need. But still having her mother's fine example to follow. Absolutely. It's another great family member to have. What an adventure. And also on her own terms, she doesn't want a husband as part of the deal. Antonia wisely advises her to avoid the village for this purpose and takes her to the city to find a solution, and a suitable donor is eventually arranged. And in their travels, they arrive at a home for unwed mothers, a house of fallen women, is how they describe it. I feel a little like Antonia still has something to learn about being judgmental here. Is the way that she initially regards these women a little troubling for you? It seems like she gets over it in a flash, but I feel like... Her instinctive reaction, however brief, is a little negative and isn't in keeping with the rest of her character. The thing that I like about it, and I'm on your side with this, is that she doesn't immediately seek to protect these women, and I think she sees them as human beings, and she's not out to make friends with a large group of people in any setting. So why would this be different? So she's essentially every terrible reality show contestant ever. I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> I guess so, yes. Well, clearly when you read reactions to this, Marlene Goris wasn't trying to make any friends either, I guess. What made some people angry, it seems like, is this implication in all of these scenarios that women didn't need any men. Some people take that awfully personally. Even in a case like this, where it's not combative, it's just stated plainly, that is apparently still an immense provocation for some. Let's just say that if they were upset by this, they should studiously avoid her prior work. A question of silence, especially. Interestingly, side note, she offered that to another of our favorites, Chantal Ackerman, but Ackerman challenged her to walk the walk and make the film herself instead, and so she did. Compared to a question of silence, based on what you've read about it, what we've seen, it seems like she is specifically saying so when she talks about it being a celebration of life. Is this a mellower side of her politics? Because after that blunt beginning, I imagine she had to deal with a fair amount of fallout of the you-are-a-sellout variety. I'm not sure exactly how to answer that. Like we talked about, I haven't seen the previous work. I haven't seen A Question of Silence or Broken Mirrors from 1984, for example, which also continues those same themes. Some people seeing it as women being driven to the brink by a male-dominated society the way the patriarchy in the instance of Broken Mirrors literally starves and strangles women, some people characterize that as strident, for example. And I find even that word to be a little troubling. Because are we saying that the work is somehow incorrect, not good? Or were the themes themselves just too difficult for you to take on? And I don't mean you, Cole, right. but other people. How often do we talk about films in which all of the female characters are stupid or lazy or ignorant or victims or whatever? Any of those things. Who cares if she takes a more uncompromising view that women are the balanced characters in these films? That men fall victim to stupidity and violence. We see that happening here too. 
So mellower, maybe it's more on the land. It's that pastoral that you mentioned. It's a more joyful film, but it certainly didn't mean that the rest of her work somehow got more seen. The most recent film that she made has not even received a distributor. So I don't know if she's being more mellow or maybe I'm just mellower. I don't think that she backs off from anything. I don't think that she tells any lies in this film. What do you think? I wholeheartedly agree with you on that point. I think the thing that makes the biggest difference, obviously, is that there is only the one extremely justifiable case of retributive violence against Pitta for these same people that are upset by not being the center of the story that can still play more like justice and not like a manifesto. I think it's tough when we look at other criticisms of the film too. One in particular, and this is a male reviewer saying that, well, in the Netherlands, we thought the film was good, but not that great. And that could be seen as an indictment of the Oscars reaching for mediocrity, or it could be justified. Immediately, right offhand, I don't know what else the Netherlands cranked out in 1995, but I would say I would probably be hard-pressed to find five films that they'd made that were better than this. Just guessing. It's hard to read any of this as anything other than basically some decades worth of, of just general misogyny. But again, looking at my own outlook, another reviewer talked about how this seemed to be made more for an American audience. Obviously, I'm an American. I really loved it. What does that say about me? Yeah, I don't have the benefit of having seen it at the time, so I can't place it in its proper context exactly. But I suspect that there is at least a little bit of an agenda on the part of the people that are panning it most severely. But Antonia and her family aren't going to be slowed down by that. Danielle gives birth to a daughter, Teresa, and she is a prodigy, a math whiz. And young Teresa is that favorite character that I referred to earlier. Mine as well. One of the two, it's young Teresa and Crooked Finger together. I love their relationship. I like how we learn things about other characters based on Teresa's intellectual capacity. Her inquisitiveness and her ability works to illustrate that not everyone knows everything. Not adults, not even Antonia herself, as formidable as she is. She stands in strong relief in comparison to the rest of these people. And I like how that underlines how Antonia is strong, but not omnipotent or omniscient in that magical realism way. This, combined with things like her response to the unwed mothers, shows me that she has flaws. For instance, she's never cruel, but there is an occasional amused mischievousness in her face. Most importantly, she doesn't have all the answers, which is what the lazier versions of this movie would do. I love the shift to young Teresa. Like I identify with Crooked Finger, I identify with her precociousness. I love that these two people enfolded each other in their hearts. There's beauty in this relationship. I think it's the fullest expression of love and companionship of what could be across a very great gulf. This group dynamic is extremely interesting for all sorts of reasons. That is a primary one, their relationship. But it goes well beyond that, too, because the things that thrive under Antonia's management are not limited to just the crops. We see this group growing. Dynamics are evolving. Dee Dee gets married, for instance. Letta arrives to be taken in at some point, adding even more nuance and depth to this collective of characteristics that make up this expanding definition of what womanhood is. She is indicative of how fine these lines can be drawn sometime as far as what constitutes a woman's identity. She doesn't necessarily like getting pregnant or having children, but she loves being pregnant and giving birth. It's a lot of complicated feelings to unravel. Even Antonia is changing. She makes this carnal proposal to Farmer Boss, and true to the nature of their relationship, he makes his counterproposal. It builds on the first exchange that they had like that, their mutual wants and needs leaving the door open for more, for possibility. There's that pragmatic transactional part of the things that they do that they're simply being honest about, but there's also a playfulness too. For instance, we see him carry her over the threshold of that love shed later. They're acknowledging and poking fun at traditional roles all the while. They're making it into what works for both of them, and they're doing that together. In the meantime, Daniela is smitten with Teresa's teacher. By now, the audience can't be surprised that Daniela is going to tread a non-traditional path, right? And by that, I mean non-traditional in the Netherlands in the middle of the century. I'm trying to imagine the audience member 
that would be upset by Daniela's trajectory, leaving home and the obligations of the family farm to pursue her interest in the arts, the decision to become pregnant without being married, and later being attracted to and falling in love with this woman. It makes me feel kind of bad that anyone would find a path so noble and well-considered to be that disconcerting. What a better world, I imagine, it would be if the people upset by this had been instead surrounded by examples like we see in the film where these occurrences are no cause for alarm and are met with pragmatism and support. Also, while we're at it, can we just throw out the ridiculous notion that a child can be classified as legitimate or illegitimate? Are you looking to debate with me? Because (laughs) I don't have any... uh... Because I have no argument against that. I'm totally on board with you. Well, you very narrowly avoid being history's greatest monster again. I have deemed it so. The argument is now done. The bits that I love in this section are the curate quitting because he loves life too much. (laughs) And the church just loves death too much. And that we see Antonia thriving in especially the pink house, which is the family farm, becomes truly pink. And I don't think that's a comment on the feminine either. I think it's just a comment on how well she's doing. More indicative as a measure of health than femininity? Yes. That she took over the running of the farm and it's never been in better shape. And now spring has sprung and love is bursting out everywhere. And we see the celebration of all ages and bodies and shapes enjoying physical love. If you've listened to the show before, you know we are totally into this montage. It seems so full of joy and discovery. Even though we don't see their bodies exposed very often, they're not objectified in that way. In fact, in one instance, they literally turn the expectation of this type of scene on its head, as Daniela does her handstand. But you're right, we can absolutely recognize that all of these different body types are beautiful and deserve celebration and exaltation. But hold on a minute. My instincts were right. It takes a turn for the darkness. Unfortunately, Pitta returns, and he's more of an asshole than he ever was. Because like with fairy tales and in real life, amidst life and love, there are truly terrible things happening. My favorite comment on this is that even in those enlightened times, Teresa is raped by Pitta. We're told this. We don't see it. And I think that that's very important. The weight is not giving to reliving the act on screen, but to the aftermath of it, which can last so much longer. And it's Dee Dee who sits the longest with young Teresa because she understands she was in her shoes. Now, never having seen this and just knowing how these sorts of things work screenplay-wise, story element-wise, I assumed he has to die. It's the first thing I thought. And Antonia does set out with her rifle. She goes to find him, and I was not sure how this was going to go. Though in retrospect, maybe I should have. I should have thought a little bit more about it. I was swept up in what was happening, obviously. But instead of murdering him, she curses him and banishes him. And we see that even that takes a huge physical toll on her. And I think it's also incredibly important the way this plays out. He cannot stay alive in this village. The balance of the village cannot handle it. And it's those silent villagers, those people who were silent beforehand, who remain silent as they beat him, and then his brother, who ultimately kills him. The violence is left in the hands of men, ultimately. Is that because we want to still remain with this idea of the fundamental goodness and faith in women, do you think? I think it speaks more to her individual character. I find this scene pretty fascinating, because to me... It establishes her position at the top of the village hierarchy without question. And she's definitely stronger than I in this case. I cannot tell you what I would have done, but it probably would not have been as measured as her response. But you're right. The entire village, the men of the village, exact their revenge. They are implementing her matriarchal law. And the way she doles out this penalty is striking. She makes an excellent judge And the punishment that she exacts in any of these situations, from hanging the little boy on the tree to this, it's never disproportionate. This is not a woman who is out of control, and yet, the justice that's eventually administered goes far beyond the sentence that she lays out. The end result being just another case of nature having its own momentum, not to be constrained by systems of social order, even Antonia's. 
I mentioned I had only watched this film once before, that was soon after it had come out. I actually bought it sight unseen from Blockbuster Video on VHS. But from that moment, I really had the sense overall that the film was just generally joyous. Because I think I forgot mostly about Crooked Finger and his very real struggle to stay alive. I think that's why it means even more to me now, identifying with him sometimes in those moments. He talks about wishing for death sometimes, for never having been born as well. And that's going to be really important here in a moment when something monumental happens to Teresa. Teresa has gone off to school, and her romantic experiments are unsatisfying. Not an uncommon experience for intelligent young women first going off to university. Do you want to speak to that at all? And no comment. <laughs> these dalliances with these few intellectuals, and I put that in heavy quotation marks, none of whom could keep up with her, culminate in her going in the opposite direction, back to something familiar, something comfortable, a situation specifically in which she can dictate the pace with Simon. Something that I'm sure also infuriates that same demographic that I referred to earlier. This monumental occurrence that you bring up, she continues the line, but not intentionally, not with the same sense of purpose as her mother, and she has a daughter, Sarah. The pregnancy itself is a question. It's posed as a question here. Should I have the child or not? What do I want? Everyone has a voice in this, and it didn't feel like they were speaking over her, but because of the nature of this family, it is a larger decision. Crooked Finger is the one here who says, please take pity on this child and don't bring it into this terrible world. Ultimately, she does decide to have Sarah. Sarah is not her preoccupation. And I think Simon also lets her be when explaining something that echoes back earlier in the film that your mother is not normal, but that's said with a smile. Well, then that makes me think of something. Is the purpose, this focus on conception, does it manifest in the personality of the child? Because, for instance, Daniela was intent. And later we see Teresa is a very focused child. Teresa, on the other hand, was not focused on conceiving a child. And Sarah doesn't generally have the same single-mindedness we see in her mother. Is there anything to that? Does that feel legitimate to you at all? Or am I just grasping at straws, making things up? Gosh, I don't know. More than anything, it struck me as the ebb and flow of life. How much Sarah reflects her grandmother, who is Daniela. She has that same artistic bent. For Sarah, it's writing and telling stories, and she inherited that element of magical realism as well. And for the sake of the story, it shows us yet another example of womanhood. A different way to be a mother, even than her mother or her grandmother. I've got a question for you here. Okay. How do you feel the hand of Marlene Gorris? Do you feel her more as a director here, as the screenwriter? I'm thinking of a couple of different things. There are all of these great acting performances. I don't think there's a dud here. But then also all of these interesting fairy tale elements and the magical realism. I feel her most resolutely with Antonia as her avatar. I feel her coming through that character, I would say. The no-nonsense part, the shepherding part, all of those things that I think Goris is trying to do artistically, we see manifested in what Antonia is doing with her family, or agriculturally. So I guess that would be more the writing. I don't know. A combination of that and direction of performance. But I don't feel it specifically film-wide. I feel it most specifically within the character of Antonia herself. How about I trade you question for question? I have a question for you. These time passages, does this qualify as an epic? A pastoral, but not an epic? Is it just length that keeps it from being so if you say no? I'm going to go back to a word I mentioned earlier. I think in general, it's too even-keeled to be considered an epic. Maybe I'm just programmed not to see a woman-centric film as an epic. Though that's not exactly true. I would say it's just a great story of several generations. It plays more like a novel, not necessarily an epic novel, but a novel for sure. It plays that way so much for me, in fact, that I was surprised to find that it wasn't based on an existing property. So it's more in the tradition of something like, like Water for Chocolate or something like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It reminds me most of Isabel Allende, which mm. I was very much into during that time period as well. That's a very well. good point. I think it has to definitely be described as magical realism, though, because if we're being honest, 
we know that these women would have faced considerably greater persecution in most places in the world during this time period. Goris positions it as a fairy tale, which I think cuts both ways, maybe a little self-deprecating. It fits as a description of the delivery method, of the aesthetic, but slyly framing it that way also acknowledges how unrealistic it might potentially be. And maybe that you can get away with some moral statements that you wouldn't necessarily be able to. I'm really glad you showed this to me. The greatest thing about the story for me is that they are all their own women with their own fixations, hopes, desires, regardless of what anyone, even the women in the rest of their lineage think. We've said it before, what a low bar it is and how infrequently we see female characters given this kind of agency so that it engenders such an extreme reaction when literally all that is happening here is that these women are putting themselves at the center of their own stories. Let me say that again. All that is happening here is that these women are putting themselves at the center of their own stories instead of living in deferential service to someone else. If you are upset by that greatly, you need to take a serious look at how come. It's not strident to me at all, it's just matter of fact. You could probably frame A Question of Silence, that first film, as strident, at least in relation to this. That's just by the virtue of the amount of that retributive violence in it that I talked about. But this is not like that at all. I'm glad you said strident again. It was something I was struggling with to express. I think the problem I have most with characterizing anything that way is that the word gets applied to women and women's work much more often than it ever does to a male work. Am I off base on that? No, you're 100% on the money with that and almost always used as a way to discount or diminish the work. Now, back to the film, and this is where it gets really difficult for me. I was starting to get choked up and then openly weep through the entirety of the last bit of the movie. We're basically at the end. Sarah has written this wonderful poem about how great Dee Dee is and all of these other women in her life. Noticeably, she doesn't mention her mom, which I don't have a problem with. And then, unfortunately, people start to die because this is life and that is a part of life. It's the death of Crooked Finger that gets me the most. He is chosen to hang himself, and we see Teresa's unbridled reaction to this, which is incredibly beautiful, and Daniela being furious about Teresa's reaction. We haven't seen anything this extreme really since the first mother. I find it really interesting that Sarah's poem unleashes this wave of tragedy, it seems like, because she just freely and openly acknowledges the existence of death. And you're absolutely right. Crooked Fingers is the most impactful of all of these. And I have to offer this up again as another way to bolster my argument that refutes those people who decry this as neutering or diminishing all the male characters. The relationship between Crooked Finger and Teresa overrides all the easy labels that you want to throw on here. I'm in complete agreement with you. It's my favorite relationship in the film. They are intellectual equals... And yet it's fascinating to me how they arrive at such different conclusions about the value of life. How that happens is a metaphysical question that I could wrestle with for a long time. The function of emotion, personality, psyche, whatever you want to call it, and the way it can yield such drastically different interpretations of the exact same set of information. He's obviously the male character with the most lines. He's the most scholarly. As the lead male character, it's telling that he embraces death and misery versus the feminine nurturing, that mind full of knowledge, he was poisoned by it, where Teresa is emboldened by it. Is that the wisdom of nature versus the combined wisdom of Western civilization all over again? Even in his bitterness, he truly loves her, and it may not be enough to ultimately save him, which is not her obligation or responsibility, but I do think at certain points and in ways even contrary to his nature, it sustains him sometimes. And she loves him, maybe more deeply than she can love anyone else, even though he's clearly paternal, an instructor, with a head full of wisdom gleaned almost exclusively from white Western male antecedents. So throw your strident argument out the window. In contradiction to the people who want to read this in either extreme, Teresa finds great value and beauty in him. And together, they undercut the way people might want to treat these characters and the way they expect Goris to express her politics. 
Teresa also tellingly, and I think you've referred to this a couple times, doesn't exhibit the maternal instinct the way her mother or grandmother might, none of which receives condemnation. All of these characters are allowed to be women the way they themselves define it. And it doesn't affect how lovely Sarah is. She's inherited and has created her own abilities as well. She's got that writing bent. We learn that it's she who's been telling the story of Antonia, her first and last day. And I think in another film that semi-loving neglect of Sarah by Teresa would somehow result in Sarah's death. Something terrible happening to her, and that never occurs. That community is just much larger than any single act like that. And life has still got to be lived. These family gatherings have gotten progressively smaller in different ways, but I adore that Sarah has that ability to see all of those loved ones again and to see that passage of time expressed. Yes, she has definitely inherited her grandmother's gift of sight, and we see everyone returning for that family dinner, the old are young again. And as Antonia takes to her deathbed, I am immediately acutely aware of the inadequacy of communication and the cruel tyranny of time at that point. All of these people that we see returning, all of these people gather around that you've loved in so many different ways, how is it possible to give them all the things they need in these last few moments? And by that you mean I was weeping uncontrollably? (laughs) The lesson I have to take from this is that she's done that already. You don't have to rush to tie it all up at the end. By taking them in and building this community where they could belong and be safe, she's done all the work long before now. Life wants to live, she says, and in keeping with the balanced, measured approach of this film, life includes death. Importantly, though, Antonia's outlook strips death of its power to frighten, I feel like. It's an odd comparison, maybe, but it's similar to a lesson that I probably first began to internalize as a kid when I first saw Watership Down. This is just part of it. This is nothing to be afraid of. And I love how much this approach gives Sarah license to be fascinated with it, with death as part of the process, to find it as much a miracle as anything else. This is the only dance we dance. It's life in a nutshell. It's the nurturing regeneration in the face of difficult obstacles, none of which should inhibit us from exhibiting our independence, our creativity, our knowledge, our curiosity. People who peg this film at one end of the spectrum or the other, I think, are missing the mark a little. The scope is the deal. It's not all bleak anger, and it's not all light-hearted fairy tale. It runs the gamut, and it provides an imaginative, thoughtful take on all these pieces. Life and love and sex and death and dreams. There's just no way that the authority of imposed social systems can hope to compete with or corral these impulses of nature, and this movie makes me extremely glad of that. I'm also extremely glad to the screenwriter version of Marlene Goris for writing this final line. Even as Antonia closes her eyes and takes her last breath, we fade to black. We're done. But she's written something, I feel like, just for me. She reassures me that even though this long chronicle has come to a conclusion, nothing has ended. And I'm so glad that I saw it the first time, that I bought it sight unseen from that VHS bin. I watched it with a group of friends, and we absolutely adored it. We talked about some of those other things happening around the same time. This was the time where I found Like Water for Chocolate and Isabel Allende. By the way, if I could recommend a book instead of a film, I would have done that here. And I have another slightly odd connection to Marlene Goris as well. Her next film was Mrs. Dalloway in 1997, and I actually saw it being filmed in London. Should we look for you as an extra? Is there any... Cutting room floor footage? I wish, but I don't think so. Well, you're right, I think. This is definitely one of those instances that highlights what a difference how, when, and where you see a film actually makes. I missed this the first time around, and I don't know how that happened, because when this came out, it was peak showbiz video beginning cinema exploration time for me. I saw a lot of other global entries from around that time, and I wouldn't have been put off by the focus of it. I was watching and enjoying considerably more provocative stuff at the time, things like Lizzie Borden's Born in Flames. So that wasn't it. I just missed it somehow. And seeing it now, I was obviously receptive to it. I'm sure I would have been then as well, but I am curious to know how it might have been different. 
how might it have felt if I had gone from a question of silence to broken mirrors to this contemporarily as it was happening? Would I have felt like it was selling out or just downshifting or something else? There's no way to know, but it's fun to talk about. I also have two decades worth of experience under my belt now since then, so that can't be overlooked. Still, I'd like to be able to jump between these two realities to be able to see how I would have reacted under different circumstances and contexts. Just based on age and experience, I'm guessing that 2019 me would tell 1995 me to work harder on it. Since you have the benefit of both experiences, do you perceive a significant difference in how you viewed it then versus how you feel about it now? I definitely do. Some of the same reasons that you mentioned, specifically the passage of time, and also for me, the trick that memory plays on me. I chose this specifically because I was in the mood for something a bit lighter, especially after the buoyancy of happy-go-lucky. And I thought back to this film. I remembered it being very warm and earthy, and I had completely forgotten about what are actually my favorite parts. The deep love, the well of sadness which I cannot do without in Crooked Finger and his relationship with young Teresa. I also hadn't registered at the time that it was a female director, nor really how historic this was in terms of the Academy Award win. I liked it because it was all of these manifestations of female desire, which are essentially human desire. A wish for independence, artistic creativity, a pursuit of knowledge, curiosity about life in general, all played out in what feels like essentially a contented film, a deep sense of well-being, which is something I often lack and tend to find great comfort in. Expressing that faith and confidence in the cycle of birth and death and replenishment. So I'm so glad to come back to it and see it with this different lens. I would also love to read the think piece that young punk rock you would do about <laughs> how you felt she was either selling out or not. It and also be, thumbing your nose to these other critics. It would be completely insufferable. I will say that. My politics have mellowed. I'm such a sellout. How about your recommendation? First... I want to talk about my search for a recommendation on this one. Okay. It was a deeply depressing experience, and here's why. Part of this was entirely my fault. I decided to just try to do a random search about matriarchy in films. This led to some lists that were basically completely Western lists, so that's the first problem, that all either contained the word woman in the title or women, or were entirely about Amazons. <laughs> we mean Roger Corman Amazons? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, okay. it was a lot of very specific period sci-fi and genre films. It was just pretty sad. So I had started writing down just some things that first came to me. I struggled and struggled, and then I came back to one of the very first that I had written down. It ended up being kind of an interesting choice because it links up directly with the makeup artist from this film, Jan Sewell, as she is working on the sequel. I chose Wonder Woman from 2017, mm. directed by Patty Jenkins, with Gal Gadot, Chris Pine, and Robin Wright. And it is simply the story of Wonder Woman, which, in case you didn't know, is this. Diana is an Amazonian warrior in training, and she leaves home to fight a war and also discovers her full powers and true destiny. Not a Roger Corman Amazon, no. No. But I still can't get away from Amazons. I loved Wonder Woman as a kid. Not specifically because she was a woman. That didn't really occur to me when I was four years old. It was because she was amazing. I also felt that way about The Incredible Hulk two television shows in the 70s that I never missed an episode of. Absolutely. And this film gives so much life and meaning to this character that I loved. She's strong and interesting and, though beautiful, I don't feel like I'm forced to stare at her in a trashy, cheap, Amazonian Roger Corman way. Her body is simply an instrument of that strength. I really liked Wonder Woman, along with Black Panther and now the new Spider-Verse. These are the only superhero or comic book films that I've enjoyed that I can remember. Though scratch that, I did like the Hulk. Well, your feelings about the Hulk aside, depending on which one you're talking about. Are we talking <laughs> about Edward Norton or... I'm thinking back to Eric Bana, but I like the Edward Norton one too. Well, the three you mentioned initially, 
I think those are some of the finest comic book films that we've seen ever made, probably, in the last 10, 15 years at least. What could compete with that, though? Those Red Brown as Captain America movies? Good point. I forgot about those. Now, how about your recommendation? My choice this time around is The World According to Garp from 1982, and that's directed by George Roy Hill and starring Robin Williams, Glenn Close, Mary Beth Hurt, and John Lithgow. It's based on the novel of the same name by John Irving, and it's about a young writer struggling to navigate the pitfalls in his personal and professional life while laboring in the long shadow of his radical feminist mother. Similarly to Antonia, Garp's mother, Jenny Fields, has taken in a variety of cast-offs, self-imposed exiles, and other people whom society has victimized. She also decided to have a child without the accompanying complications of a husband. Being written by John Irving, though, and concentrating on the experiences of a son in a world of women, it definitely leans much more toward the latter half of the compare-and-contrast scale. His mother is considerably more clinical, even mercenary, than Antonia's even-keeled Earth mother. The tragedies definitely have sharper edges, and sex often lacks the joy that you find here, ranging in some cases from punitive to downright illegal. I hesitate to say that this is the realism that's left when you take the magical part away, because Garp is definitely an exaggeration of its own, but that just means it's improbable, not impossible. It's terribly funny, too, in places Robin Williams and Glenn Close have an uncommon and intriguing dynamic together. It works really well. I recommend it. It's one of those that I get something different out of every time I go back to it. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Wonder Woman and The World According to Garp. And that brings us to the end of episode 97. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. There are all sorts of perks that you can find there. Bonus content, enamel pins, we'll record commentary tracks for you. Bonus episodes come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. Don't forget to come over to our social media with your votes on which film we should cover for episode 100. If you would just like to get in touch with us, or send us listener questions for that special episode, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We mentioned in the last episode that we have now launched our new podcast network, The 25th Frame, and we want to highlight some of the other shows on the network coming up over the next few weeks. And the first one that we want to talk about is Criterion Now. Criteria Now brings news from the Criterion Collection, and I love it because there's an emphasis on the joy of film and love for the artists who make film. And more than anything, I appreciate that gentle and inquisitive spirit that Aaron and Mark have. I don't know about you, but my favorite bits are talking about a recent Criterion we just watched, which more often than not inspires the rest of us to check out a title we hadn't gotten to yet or had even forgotten was a part of the collection. I also love the part of the show where we just talk about anything great that we saw. Yeah, it's always super fun to be on there. And they have a rotating cast of great guests to help break things down every week. I was lucky enough to have just been on episode 78 with our friend Matt Gasteyer, who also hosts one of the shows on the network, The Complete Podcast. And that takes a look at filmmakers' entire filmographies one movie at a time. But on this Criterion Now episode, we talked about the April 2019 slate of offerings, the network launch, and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's easy to just talk for hours with those guys because they are so knowledgeable and fun and connected to what is happening with one of our favorite boutique labels. So check out Criterion Now wherever you get your podcasts or at 25thframemedia.com. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to the people who have shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Tim Lego, Jay McIntyre, and Matteo Boscarol. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure and tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and now at the 25th frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 
the 25th frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.